You know, life has a way of lulling us to sleep sometimes. Did you know that? What I mean by lulling us to sleep is that we lose focus. We sometimes get distracted from what is most important. We stop paying attention to what's happening in our culture. And in some ways, we become a part of the problem in our decaying culture instead of part of the solution. When Jesus sat down on the Mount of Beatitudes just northwest of the Sea of Galilee and looked into his disciples' eyes, he told them, you are the salt of the earth. If the salt loses its saltiness, it's good for nothing. In the same sermon, Jesus also said, you are the light of the world. And he says, light should not be hidden. Don't hide your light. Instead of hiding your light, let your light shine in the presence of others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Our Lord Jesus has given us, his church, a clear mandate and responsibility to make Christian disciples in every generation and among every culture of people. In so doing, we infect the culture with the life-transforming message of the gospel. That life-preserving message of the gospel. It is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ at work in us and through us that is the light in this very dark world. It is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ at work in us and through us that is the preserving salt of this decaying culture. And so the obvious question for us is how are we doing in being salt and light? How are we doing individually? How are we doing as a church collectively? Well, we can look around and see the empty seats in our sanctuary today, waiting to be filled with your unchurched friends, neighbors, coworkers, and family members, and schoolmates. So the question is, will you and I take personal responsibility to fill one of those seats even this year? Before the year is out, would you say, I'm going to take responsibility to fill this empty seat next to me or in front of me or beside me or behind me. Now today I'll need a lot longer, much longer introduction than usual to lay a foundation for this message. So hang in there until we get to the meat of the message. Today I want to once again call us to faithfully be about the Father's business but I've recently realized that to be faithful and effective in God's business, we must understand our times and know what to do. And that's the title of this message, Understanding Our Times and Knowing What to Do. In case you haven't noticed, Christianity has been under attack right here in these United States of America in the last 30, 40 years. I've seen documented cases of churches being discriminated against by Chicago City Hall, no less. I have friends who are Christian attorneys who represent those churches by fighting for their equal rights under the law. Less than 10 years ago, for example, Pastor Frank Teasdale was arrested by Chicago police for simply handing out gospel tracts in a public square. In May 
2011, Judge William Hart ruled that Pastor Frank was wrongfully arrested. Now think about this, the assault on the traditional Judeo-Christian definition of marriage that we have suffered in this country in recent times. Since the legalization of abortion, over 54 million innocent babies have been slaughtered in their mother's wombs, and many even outside of their mother's wombs just after birth. Recently, Governor Andrew Cuomo of New York State signed a bill that would make it easier to kill babies born alive after a failed attempted abortion. Shameful. And many people cheered as the governor signed that murderous bill into law. Look what's happened to both the Boy Scouts and the Girl Scouts in America. Godless leaders of those once great institutions have ripped out the godly principles that once guided them. And I could go on and on pointing out to the many examples of the way Christianity and the church has been under attack. But let me bring it home to the church with one more illustration. What about the millions of children who are being raised in our Christian homes and our Christian churches and in Christian youth ministries? Why are so many of them leaving the church and their faith behind once they go off to college? Why is that? And then, I mean, it's a, it's a really a very interesting thing. Recent polls state that about 75% of children raised in the church leave the church once they leave home for college. What is it about our current times that allow such things to take place in what many people used to call a Christian nation? I want to suggest to you that we are fast becoming, if not already there, a post-Christian nation. By that I mean that most people in America today no longer have a Judeo-Christian worldview. Your worldview is like a pair of glasses through which you see and interpret everything around you. Listen to what President Barack Obama said while he was still a senator. He said, whatever we once were, we are no longer a Christian nation, at least not just We are also a Jewish nation, a Muslim nation, a Buddhist nation, and a Hindu nation, and a nation of non-believers, end quote. It used to be that public schools in America read and taught the Bible in public schools, and teachers and students prayed in school. And then there came a time when schools would no longer teach the Bible, but they allowed children to be released to their local houses of worship for religious instruction. A man named Don O'Hannis from Moody Church who's been attending our church recently told me that he used to attend the former Stewart Elementary School right behind our church, which is now the Stewart Lofts Apartments building. And he attended that school. He's now a man in his 70s, but when he was in elementary school, he attended there. And he would remember being released from school for the hour of religious instruction, and he would come into this building at the former church that owned and occupied this building called the North Shore Congregational Church to receive religious instruction in the middle of the day, in the middle of the school day. And then after that, he would go back into his classroom at his school at Stewart. Some students went to their Catholic church or Jewish synagogue in uptown, and and he and other Protestant students came here because it was the closest school or church to the school. 
But we all know the sad reality is that prayer and the Bible have been kicked out of public schools today. They have been replaced with the religion of scientific humanism or naturalism. And we humans have become so smart in our own achievements and discoveries that we no longer have any need for faith in God because science now explains everything. At least that is the thought. It's ironic, but just about the time we got so smart and began putting the Bible and prayer out of schools, we also began to see a surge in teen unwed pregnancies, gangs, drugs, guns, dropout rates in our public schools. In his book, Gospel Reset, Salvation Made Relevant, Ken Ham opens our eyes to help us understand our times and know what to do. He clearly points out that the fact the fact that our culture has changed. Therefore, how we present the gospel must also change. Uh, since most people in our current culture no longer have a Christian worldview, they will not understand or accept the way we communicate the traditional message of the gospel. Now, let's be clear. The gospel is a constant, which means the gospel never changes. But how we present the gospel must change according to the culture in which it is being preached or shared. For example, when America's evangelist Billy Graham used to preach, tens of thousands of people flocked to hear him and tens of thousands went forward to receive Christ after his meetings. Ken Ham says that's because most people during those days were heavily influenced by the Christian worldview. But since that time, since that's no longer the case, we must find new ways to present the same soul-saving message of the gospel to a culture no longer influenced in large part by the Christian worldview. He goes on to illustrate this point by showing us the difference between two sermons of the apostles Peter and Paul. So now after this long introduction, I invite you to open your Bibles to the New Testament book of Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. Acts 2, 14. This account took place in Jerusalem not long after the resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. The apostles were trying to be faithful witnesses of Christ and were attending to the business of our Heavenly Father. Now, I want you to pay attention to Peter's audience and the language and references that he used to persuade them to believe in Christ. Verse 14 of Acts chapter 2 begins this way. Then Peter stood up with the eleven. He raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. So who are his, who is his audience? Fellow Jews, primarily, he's speaking to. Uh, these men are not drunk, as you suppose. They only, it's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Why would he reference the prophet Joel? Because the Jewish people knew who the prophet Joel was. He was a Jewish prophet in the Old Testament. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit. Which God? He's talking about the God of the Jewish people, the Jehovah, the God of Israel. 
He says that God says he is going to pour out his spirit on all the people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. Well, why would he say all of that? Because the Jewish people were familiar with signs and wonders and miracles. The sun will be turned to darkness, the, the moon to blood before coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Where does that come from? A text in the Old Testament that they were very familiar with. They understood the name of the Lord, and so he made reference to that. Men of Israel, again, addressing his fellow Jews. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, why does he reference David? Everybody knew, he didn't even have to say King David. The moment you say David in Israel, everybody knew you were talking about the King David of the Old Testament. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand and I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life, and you will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, look at that, verse 29. Why does he say brothers? Because he's talking to, again, his fellow Jews. I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here today. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him an oath that he would place on his descendants on his throne place on one of his ascendants on his throne. Seeing that was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. But God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not descend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. That's Peter's preaching. That's his message to the people gathered there in Jerusalem during the day of Pentecost. And by the way, the scripture says you might be interested if you read the rest of that passage you'll see how many people responded to Peter's message thousands the Bible says I think 3,000 responded to his message and gave their lives to Christ were baptized and added to the church so we can see clearly that from from the beginning to the end of his message Peter carefully crafted the gospel message using language and references that was very familiar to his fellow Jews the Jewish world view included God as creator, man as sinner, in need of being reconciled to God. So Peter didn't need to rehash all of that. That was an assumed knowledge of the Jewish people. 
Peter understood that there was, however, a gap in their understanding which led them to reject the claims of Christ and to turn him over to the Romans to be crucified. And so he used the Jewish Old Testament terms and references to build a bridge spanning the gap of understanding so that they would have another opportunity to believe and repent with better understanding of who Christ is and what he came to do. Now let's look at Paul's message to the Greeks. Later on in Acts chapter 17, you can flip your Bibles over there. Acts 17, beginning in verse 16, once again, pay attention to his audience, the audience of the Apostle Paul this time, and the language and the references that he uses to build a bridge of the gospel to the hearts and minds of his audience. Verse 16 of Acts chapter 17, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. So Paul is not in Jerusalem where Peter was preaching. He's now in Athens among, who lives in Athens? The Greeks. He was among, he was among the Greeks. And the Greeks were famous for the many idols they had. They, they were a people full of idolatry and they had a God to cover every area of life just in case, you know, for, they had a God for traveling, they had a God for healing, they had a God for business, they had a God for marriage and had a God for children, they had a God for paternity and maternity and for fertility and for all these different things. They had different gods. And they had these statues. And we went, when we were uh, in Israel, we actually saw some of the Greco-Roman cities, the ancient Greco-Roman cities that were built in Israel. And we saw some of those statues, those ancient statues to the ancient gods that were uncovered there, marble statues still today from the ancient world, littered all over Israel in the various holy sites and cities. Verse 17, so, Paul says, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happen to be there. So the apostle Paul is reasoning in the synagogue, which is where Jews are, but then also among the God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace day by day with anyone who happened to be there. Verse 18, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with Paul. And some of them said, what's this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods and they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And then they they took him, they brought him in a meeting to the Areopagus. That's a place on, that still exists today. You can go there. My daughter and I have been there. And you can go up to Mount Olympus and look down on the Mars Hill where there was an Areopagus or the Agora Marketplace. And the ancient ruins are still there. And you can go and visit this very place in Acts 17 where Paul met with the various Greek philosophers who spent their whole day discussing a lot of new ideas, okay? And so they said to him, verse 19, may we know this new teaching, what it is that you're presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we want to know what they mean. Now, verse 21 tells us, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking and listening to the latest ideas, Okay? Then Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and he said, Men of Athens, who is his audience? The men of Athens. I see that in every way you are very religious. So Paul is there now pointing out and commending them for their religiosity. 
For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now that you worship is something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and the Lord of earth, and he does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men and they, that they should inhabit the whole world, the whole earth, and, and he determined the time set for them and the, the, and the exact places that they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own prophets or poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. And when they heard this, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. They, made, they mocked the Apostle Paul. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And at that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them, Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Interesting, you can see the difference in Peter's sermon and Paul's sermon. Different audience and also a different approach at preaching and teaching, a different approach to building a bridge to the gospel. Now, Paul knew that he wasn't speaking to an audience with a Judeo-Christian worldview. And so instead of assuming a Jewish religious background, he assumed a pagan religious one, a pagan religious one. He complimented them on their religiosity, and then he capitalized on one of their statues to the unknown God. By claiming that unknown God statue as the God of gods and the creator of the universe. Paul then went back to Genesis, the first book of the Bible, which is a foundation of the gospel that we all believe and preach. You see, the Greek religious worldview knew nothing of the Judeo-Christian God as creator, sustainer, and redeemer of the world. The Greek worldview did not include the fall of mankind into sin, the desperate need of redemption and the reconciliation of God. Those are foreign concepts, which is why when the people were listening to Paul, they said, what's this babbler trying to say? They called him a babbler because they, to them it was just gibberish. It was just so far out. It was un, un, unthinkable and unintelligible. But they were curious enough to give Paul a hearing, and so he then went on to explain and build the bridge. But he went, in order to build a bridge to these people who had no Judeo-Christian worldview, he went back to Genesis. Went back to the beginning. Talked about the God as creator. Talked about humans as sinners in the fall. And then the, the redemption that came through Christ. So this is why the Apostle Paul used a different approach when preaching the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And this is the approach that I would suggest 
is needed for today. We find ourselves living in an American culture that is more like the ancient Greeks than it is the ancient Jews. We need to once again lay the foundation of creation, sin, and death before sharing the good news of salvation that is found only in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Otherwise, the gospel makes no sense to the people in a post-Christian culture. Even in the church, polls have shown that adults and youth alike have lost confidence in the authority of God's word. For example, many American Christians don't believe the Genesis account of creation. You know what they believe? It's more like a fairy tale. Instead, they believe Darwin's theory of evolution without realizing that to believe Darwin is to disbelieve God. Because what Darwin, Darwin's account of how this world and universe came to be is radically different than what God's word says. It's not unlike what happened to Eve in Genesis 3 when Satan came to tempt her. Do you remember what Satan said? He planted the seed of doubt in Eve's mind about what God said, and then he flat out contradicted God's word. You see, the bottom line is this. The Judeo-Christian worldview begins and ends with God's word. After all, God has always been there. He knows everything. He's revealed to us everything that we need to know to reverse the curse of fallen humanity. And so the moment we allow men's contradictory words to replace God's word is the moment that we begin to lose our way in our relationship with God. See, if God's word can't be trusted in the foundational account of creation and the fall, how can it be trusted in the gospel account of redemption? You understand that logical connection? If we can't trust God in Genesis and how what he says about how we came to be and why we came to be, how can we trust him in the account in the Gospels where he tells us why we need and how we need to be saved? And so in closing, I want to read a final section of Ken Ham's book, Gospel Reset, and I think every one of you ought to get a copy of this little book. It's not a large book, but it is powerful in helping us understand our times and know what to do. He says, consider the following conversation with represent, uh, which represents many that he has had. This is Ken Ham speaking. As he has traveled around the country in the, in the English-speaking world, he says, I asked my audience, if I were to ask the average Sunday school teacher this question, in Sunday school, do you teach biology, geology, astronomy, anthropology, and chemistry? What do you think the answer would be? No. They don't teach that in Sunday school, right? If then I ask, what do you teach in Sunday school? What do you think the teachers would say? We teach Jesus. We teach theology. We teach the Bible, right? So then he continues. Okay, now if I ask, where do students learn about biology, geology, astronomy, anthropology, physics, and chemistry? What's the answer? They learn that in school. Okay. So he says, Oh, I get it. At Sunday school, in fact, in most church programs, we teach about Jesus, the Bible, but at school, students learn about geology, biology. Right? Right. Okay, now, here's the deal. When he asks the question, why is it that 70, 80, 90% of children raised in church, when they go off to college, 
leave the church and leave the faith. He says it's, it's happening because we're not teaching more geology, biology, and history in church. And he's going to get to that in a moment. He says they go off to college and they learn what they call, quote unquote, real history about how the earth came to be and real biology about how humans came to be. And this real history the world teaches encompasses such things as the earth is billions and billions of years old and we have, we evolved from ape-like ancestors and some of you would say, yeah, I can look in the mirror and see my ancestors look, right? I can see uh, the resemblance, right? Some of you will say that. Thank you. I'm glad you don't. Um, because I don't believe that either. That's what Darwin teaches, but that's not what God's word teaches. So he says here, this Big Bang theory brought, that brought the universe into existence, there is no Adam, there's no Eve, there's no fall into sin, there's no evidence of animals changing by mutation or natural selection, is deceptively equated with molecules to man evolution. And the Bible teaches religion, but schools teach real science. That's the conclusion that people have. The Bible, you get your religion from the Bible, but you go to school to learn real history, real science, because the Bible has nothing to say about that, right? That's what people begin to think. Then he goes on to say, the Bible informs us that death entered the world after sin. Why is that significant? Because if you believe in the evolutionary theory of billions and millions of years, the fossil record shows us all these fo fossils record is a record of dead things before humans were created on this earth, right? So, so if, if the Bible says that sin and death came after the creation of man and the fall of man, but the fossil records show all these dead things and you believe evolution, then that means that death and disease came before man was created. Because you have all this fossil history record that shows all this history of dead things before humans showed up, uh, so they say. And the scripture is contradictory to that. He says, now consider this. The world through the school, the secular media, teaches that there never was a global flood and that death has been here since the beginning of life eons ago. Thus they think the Bible's geology must be wrong. Because the Bible teaches that there was a flood and the flood is what created the the, the, the sediments with all the layers of dead things. The Bible teaches that the earth was created before the sun and it was covered with water. However, the world teaches that as a result of the Big Bang, the sun became, uh, came before the earth and the earth began as, as a hot molten body and thus the world thinks the Bible's astronomy must be wrong. The Bible teaches that God made the first man from the dust and that all the people and all the descendants came from one man and one woman Thus, there's only one human race. But the world teaches that the various races of people evolved from some ape-like ancestors millions of years ago, and thus the Bible's anthropology must be wrong, they think. The Bible teaches that God created distinct kinds of families of animals and plants to reproduce after their own kind. And the world teaches that earlier animals and plants evolved into radically different kinds of creatures. Thus they think the Bible's biology must be wrong. The Bible teaches that life forms came into being fully functioning 
as the will of an infinite creator who must thus have also provided the code system of life, which is DNA, and its transitional and transition machinery. The world teaches that matter by itself produced such a code system, the DNA. Thus, they think the Bible's chemistry must be wrong. Now, the history in Genesis that encompasses this geology and biology and anthropology is the same history that leads up to the message of the cross. And out of this history comes the rules or the morality by which we are to live. However, if the geology and the biology, etc., are, no, are not true from the Bible, then ultimately neither is the history of Christ real, you see. Finally, he says, the result is that an increasing number of people no longer see the Bible as relevant. And so they reject the morality and the salvation message of the Bible. The church is telling people, trust in Jesus, but abortion is wrong. Homosexual behavior is wrong. Transgender is wrong. But more and more people don't listen because the message of Jesus, the morality that the church is preaching, comes from a book that in their minds is not trustworthy in biology and chemistry and history and all these other things. And this is summed up by actor Bruce Willis. Here's what Bruce Willis said. He said in an interview, with what we know about science, anyone who thinks at all probably doesn't believe in fire and brimstone anymore. And so organized religion has lost that voice to hold up their moral hand. And so for the church to be relevant in our day, we must be like the men of Issachar in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32. The Bible says of those men that they understood their times and they knew what to do. I pray that we as a church in our post-Christian culture would understand the times in which we live and that we would know what to do in terms of how we present the good news of the gospel. We've got to go back to Genesis and realize that everything in the book of Genesis has to do with biology and history and chemistry and, and uh, paleontology and, and all of those ologies and not just theology. Because if you reject the teachings of Genesis, the teachings of the Gospels will not make sense. And, and so we've got to help our children and ourselves understand the validity that's found in the historical account in Genesis as to how God created us and why he created us and how sin and death entered the world and sickness and disease because of man's sinfulness. And then you'll understand why we need a savior and why the redemption is even necessary and how it is made possible through Jesus Christ. So may God help us to re-understand what is happening in our culture and why we are, have drifted so far from where we have been and how we can reclaim the gospel and repackage the gospel in a way that makes sense, not only to our own children, but also to those that we share the gospel with. So may God help us be like the men of Issachar who understood their times and knew what to do. Let's stand as we pray.